Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here, as always, with Joe Hagan. Hey, Joe. Hey. How are you? Are you relaxed? I feel happy, which is uh, a great segue into our interview today, which it is a little bit different than the kind of stuff we usually talk about, but it shouldn't be. And it is completely related. We have Dan Harris on our podcast today. Dan Harris, as many of you know, has been an ABC News anchor for many, many, many years. You know his face. You watched him on Nightline. You watch him delivering the news every week. And in 2004, he had a panic attack while live on national television, which is a great fear of mine. Wow. <laughs> and it sort of changed the entire trajectory of the rest of his life and his thoughts on his career. And he wrote a very, very best-selling book called 10% Happier and started the 10% Happier Company and is now sort of dedicated his career alongside news with teaching people how to meditate and how to make changes in their lives to make them happier. And we talked all about that. And uh, it's so interesting because you and I talk a lot about sort of well-being as it relates to the news on this podcast. I feel like it comes up every week yeah. just organically about, uh, you know, we we had a conversation a few weeks ago about getting off Twitter and about uh, disengaging from cable news and, and how we think people have really become so addicted to the news and what we think that has done to people's psyche. And so it was really interesting to talk to someone who is straddling both of these worlds and his opinion on that and how you kind of get out of the craziness and get into yourself a little bit more. And as someone who mm -hmm. really has struggled to get into meditating, I, I walked away from this conversation feeling like, oh, this is something I really should commit to getting into and getting back into. And just yeah. feels like a good step for all of us. And, and one that we can do at home, one that is at very little cost, and one that scientifically is backed up to show that you really can make a real difference in, in how you feel every day by just committing to, you know, five minutes every day. Totally. And I think it's so interesting to watch over the last many years where things that in the past might have seemed like out of the norm, you know, like yoga, right? Woo-woo. At, at one time, it seemed like some woo-woo thing that some people did in the 70s. And over time, people realize, oh, this is actually good for you. Same with meditation. It's like you can get an app now and and it will guide you through it. And it's not somebody evoking like Sanskrit or anything. It's just like a, for instance, I'm thinking about the Headspace app. It's just like a British guy talking to you calmly. And and I'm so happy for it because I feel like you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening to this interview because you know, there was a time, and I'm thinking 20 years ago, and by the way, you know, I'm turning a certain age this week, and I have been thinking about my <laughs> my role as a kind of uh, a perspective giver, right? Uh, that's, that's, your, that's what happens when you reach a certain age. You're the person that can provide the long-term mm -hmm. perspective. But 20 years ago, there was a guy who was an editorial director at Condé Nast, our, our company. His name is James Truman. And I remember, forget this, I worked at, a, at the New York Observer at the time, and it was kind of a gossipy uh, newspaper. It was a lot of fun. But James Truman went on a, a month-long retreat in Woodstock, New York, to kind of meditate with some Tibetan monks. And he was 
it was scandalizing at Condé Nast because people thought, oh, what is this guy? He's overseas Lucky Magazine and Allure and, you know, Vogue and, and so forth. And he's doing this. And nobody, people didn't accept it. They were very catty about it. I remember that, you know, one of the lines was, can he get a red car like everyone else? You know, they just thought he was having a midlife crisis. That's so funny. <laughs> and it just was seen as like a contrary to what, you know, we do in the media, basically, as like as completely, uh, you know, antithetical to it. And I think the irony is, is that going and finding your own personal kind of meditative space outside of, you know, the news or anything that's in a glossy magazine, it's not actually two separate things. I mean, I think that's one of the things you learn is it's actually just going to make you more able if you are looking at the news or are looking at a magazine that doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, substantial to enjoy it. It doesn't, they're not uh, two opposed things. You, you bring with it a new sense of perspective and calm and you're not agitated when you find out the news as much, right? You can uh, be more grounded and not like, that's the problem with the addiction to Twitter and all these things and, and looking at the news is that, it starts to take over your mind and you kind of become untethered from that sense of self and that sense of calm. Mm. It's true. I think that, first of all, that story is an amazing one, and especially because I feel like 90% of magazine stories now, uh, particularly in the, the magazines in, in that vein, are about like, we tried this and now we're you know, on a spiritual journey. Here's what happened when I went on a a 28 day silent retreat Um, or magazine type stories, I should say. Uh, Right. So much has changed and it feels like we are just really uh, on a path where mental health is now something we talk about in line with physical health and in line with uh, exercising and in line with all of the things that we do to take care of ourselves in a way it was so taboo and and spirituality was even more so. And so it just feels like uh, we're actually taking it seriously because there is data to back up the fact that it should be taken seriously. And it's something that I'm thinking about a lot and I know that you think about a lot. Speaking of, of thinking about a lot, I didn't want to bring up your big birthday because I didn't know if it was something you wanted to talk about. But now well, that it you- is, I am ambivalent. <laughs> and that's Okay. And now, but, but you bring it up and I want to just recognize your special week, your special day, your special month, if, if you want it to be your special year, really it's a birthdays are, they're kind of magic, especially big birthdays. And I think this year more than ever, we have gotten a glimpse into why every birthday is a privilege and not a Mm -hmm. right. And we should celebrate all of this stuff, even if you feel ambivalent about them. It's a moment to reflect on all of the journeys you've taken, all of the things you have accomplished, all the things you want to accomplish and the journeys you want to take. And you, my friend, have taken a lot of journeys. You have accomplished a lot of things and you have a lot left to do and a lot of things that I can't wait to do with you and to watch you do. And I just want to say I wish you the happiest of days, the happiest of years, way more than 10% happier. It has been over the last year, it has been a gift to me 
to get to know you and to get to spend this time with you. And I know our listeners feel the exact same way. I want nothing but every good thing that you want for you in this year ahead. And I cannot wait to keep doing this together and to actually celebrate with you in person, which we will hopefully get to do soon. And I just, I just hope you have the happiest, happiest of celebrations. What are you doing to mark this occasion? Well, we should um, say that Joe is turning 21. Ah, thank you. I'm glad I, it was the elephant in the room. We didn't want to, uh, to say it out loud. It's not polite. Um, no, I thank you. I'm, that's so sweet of you to say. It's been an incredible year. And the perspective I've gained is that though I say I'm ambivalent about it, I'm actually very grateful for arriving here and for there being a lot more uh, runway ahead and lots to do. And I'm very busy right now, so that's good. Uh, Writing stories for Vanity Fair that you'll be seeing in, in the months ahead. But one of the great presents that I expect to get this year is getting to see you in person. And won't that be delightful? And you get, and, you get uh, a new little podcast niece as your ultimate gift. And that's right. We have so much uh, to be thankful for. And, you know, on that note, I feel like really what I want to do is just um, go have a moment of silence with myself and, and meditate. There's, there's a sun's out where I am at mm. and I'm looking out the window and it's a beautiful day. And maybe I'll take the latest issue of Vanity Fair out there with me and just relax. Spring has sprung. Meditation is on the horizon. We are both fully vaccinated. We are seeing each other in person soon. You have this birthday to celebrate. Life is good. Life is getting gooder. And we should all just take this moment to appreciate what we have, to celebrate what we've got, and to figure out how to make ourselves at least 10% happier. And the interview is... A start along that journey. Should we, should we get to it? Let's get to it. It's going to get gooder and gooder. All right, birthday boy. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. We are so lucky to have Dan Harris on with us today, not only because I love him personally, but Dan, you are kind of at the intersection of everything I want to talk about these days. We talk so much on this podcast about obviously the news and about the pandemic and how all of those things are impacting our day-to-day life and our mental health. And you're kind of the guy who's bridging all of those worlds. I'm trying. Uh, first of all, great to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. And uh, thank you for the kind words. And yeah, I'm really, I'm trying to think about how all of these things that are happening in the world are incredibly stressful. And then how can we as individuals not only manage our own stress, but then be productive and positive players in a turbulent atmosphere? Mm. Well, I think everyone knows you from watching the news and watching your career 
for many, many years coming into everyone's living room. And I'm sure everyone knows you for what you're doing now, but can you just take us back into how you got into this happiness space? Where did it all stem from? I know I've read the story about a panic attack on air, but take us back to where this all began and and your journey through this brave new world. Sure. I don't assume anybody knows me at all. I'm always surprised when anybody knows me at all. So I'll assume. Oh, come on. (laughs) I will assume that nobody knows anything. So I'll start at the beginning and I'll try to give you a sort of a good abbreviated version. Um, I have been an ABC News anchor and reporter for 21 years. And a long time ago, uh, back in 2004, I had a panic attack on uh, Good Morning America live on the air. And uh, it was really embarrassing. And uh, you can see it if you Google um, panic attack on live television, it's the first result. Um, And even more embarrassing than the panic attack was what caused it, which was some pretty dumb behavior in my personal life. I had spent a lot of time as a ambitious young reporter in after 9-11 in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan and Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, Iraq, many, many, many months in Iraq. And I came home in the middle of this period. I got depressed, didn't know I was depressed, Mm. and then started to self-medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine. And even though I wasn't high on the air and I wasn't even using drugs that often, it was for a pretty short period of time, it was enough, according to the shrink I consulted after the panic attack, to change my brain chemistry and make it more likely for me to freak out. So- Wow. uh, I uh, sorry, I can stop there if you have any questions. No, I I do have a question. Were you feeling anxiety on a day-to-day basis when this was happening? No, I was feeling depression, but um again, it was and I have struggled with both anxiety and depression for, you know, since sentience really. Mm. Um but at this time I didn't I wasn't conscious of being depressed. I I was feeling terribly. Uh, I, I felt like I had a low grade fever all the time. I felt mm. uh, I was having trouble getting out of bed, but I was not conscious of being depressed. And then it kind of randomly, a friend of mine offered me some cocaine, which I had never done before. I, I was in my early thirties and had made it that far without ever really doing any hard drugs. And I, I don't know why I said, sure. And it made me feel better. And, um, but I didn't, I did not connect the dots in any way. And, and until I had the panic attack. So what happened post panic attack? I mean, that is kind of anyone who goes on air or does anything public facing, uh, or anyone who's had a panic attack and can imagine what it would be like to have one on air. That's kind of a worst case scenario. Oh yeah. It sucked uncontrollably. It was terrible. Um, what happened afterwards? So in the immediate aftermath, I lied. Um, a bunch of, you know, everybody in the studio sort of asked what, what went wrong here. And I just said, I don't know. And for two reasons, I, I think I got away from it with it. One is that if you look at the video, it's not actually that bad. I mean, it looks like I'm stumbling and stuttering. And yeah. uh, but, you know, I'd had a, several, maybe a decade or more training in being on television. And that, you know, plus my baseline sociopathic, uh, sociopathological uh, tendencies allowed me to <laughs> kind of soldier through. And I was able to, I didn't, I I was able to toss it back to the main hosts of the show, uh, Charlie Gibson and Diane Sawyer at that time. And so I didn't have to keep going that long on my own. Right. Um, 
without those two variables, I would have gotten way, way uglier. And I don't think anybody would have believed me if I had said, I don't know what happened. Sorry, I'll be fine. Um, and so I was able to go back on the air an hour later and, uh, uh, and it was okay. Uh, the one person who knew exactly what was going on was my mom who called mm. me backstage and was like, yeah, you just had a panic attack. And she was, mm. she was, uh, she recently retired, but she was a really quite, um, eminent physician, um, academic physician. And, uh, she connected me with a, a psychiatrist. Mm. And when you started going to see the psychiatrist, when you started down this journey and you started putting together that the ways that you were coping were actually causing you greater problems, how did you set out to, to really heal yourself and what was the journey like from there? So it, it, was, it was kind of messy and uh, it's not neat and tidy, but I'll just give you, I'll try to give you the short version. It never is, right? <laughs> it never is. Um, it's not like, you know, I often make this joke that it's not like I went to the shrink, quit doing drugs, started meditating, and then was, you know, barfing up rainbows all the time. That That's not sure. how it went. Um, I did quit doing drugs immediately. And since that's not super easy, I committed myself to go seeing this, this psychiatrist once or twice a week indefinitely. I think I saw him for like 10 or 15 years until he got kicked up, but promoted upstairs at the hospital where he worked and um, didn't, doesn't really see patients much anymore. But um, uh, so it was mostly therapy for a long time. And then I started to, for reasons having to do with my professional life, uh, started to get interested in the self-help world. I had been assigned by my then boss and mentor, Peter Jennings, who's no, no longer alive, but it was a quite famous news anchor. Uh, he had assigned me to cover faith and spirituality, which is not something I wanted to do. Both my parents are scientists and um, mm. Uh, I, I had no, I did have a bar mitzvah, but only for money. So I was not like really spiritually inclined or anything like that. Um, that is the strongest reason as a 13 year old to go on any kind of spiritual journey. Oh yeah. Those, those checks for the bar mitzvah. So, so I, uh, I didn't want to do this beat, but it, it, you know, Peter kind of forced me to do it. And at first it was mostly like sort of evangelicals and things like that, which was really interesting for me. And I learned just how ignorant I was about these kinds of issues and, made a lot of good friends. And that, through that beat, I, I, though I started to get interested in self-help, not because I was interested in it personally, but because it was sort of good TV stories. Um, right. And one of my, one of my colleagues, he, uh, a producer named Felicia, recommended I read a book by a guy named Eckhart Tolle. And I had not heard of him, um, but he's a super, super popular self-help guru. And I started to read the his book and I thought it was just like distilled bullshit, just full with filled with, you know, all kinds of pseudoscientific assertions and um and weird claims about how he had a spiritual awakening and lived on a park bench in a state of bliss in the city of London for two years. Mm -hmm. Just it doesn't seem practical given that they have winter. But anyway, I yes. was not particularly impressed with him at, at first, but then as his book continued, he started to talk about the fact that we all have a voice in our heads, by which he, or he also uses the term the ego, by which he's not referring to, you know, like the way we talk about ego these days mostly means just thinking you're great. He's referring right. to the fact that we think at all, that we have this nonstop inner conversation, you know, we're just constantly yammering away at ourselves. And if we broadcast this conversation aloud, I mean, you would be locked up. It's just constant chatter and judging people and, and judging yourself and comparing yourself to other people or thinking about the past. 
or thinking about the future to the detriment of whatever's happening right now. And his argument is that when you're unaware of this cacophony, it owns you. And I, I just thought that was incredible. I'd never heard anybody make this point before, and it seemed intuitively true. And it it, it explained the panic attack. You know, like I, mm. I went off to war zones as an idealistic and ambitious young guy, didn't think about the consequences, came home, got depressed, was insufficiently self-aware to know I was depressed, blindly started self-medicating, and it all just blew up in my face. So that was just a huge aha moment for me. And um that's really what kind of set me on the path toward being interested in meditation. So how, as, as someone who I think is predisposed to be more skeptical of the path that you went down, how did you kind of get over yourself? And how did you get into meditating? How did you, it, it takes discipline. I have a hard time with it, um, but it definitely has such value and we can talk about that value, but I just don't know how you make yourself take that first step. Mm. Well, there are two parts of this. There's the sort of what allowed me to get over the skepticism. And then there's the how do you actually form the habit? Um, Walk me through both of those steps. Yeah, I'll do the first one first. And then and then we could because the habit formation is a huge topic. And I mean, I've, I've a lot to say about that. But just in terms of my own thing, the, really, it was it was just science. I started getting interested in in meditation and, um, you know, at first I was extremely skeptical. Um, but then I, I noticed this was about 2009 or so. So like the first time in my life I've ever been ahead of a trend. I noticed that there was a ton of scientific research that strongly suggested that meditation could have all these benefits and that could literally, literally rewire key parts of your brain associated with stress or attention regulation or compassion, self-awareness. It's been shown to lower your blood pressure, boost your immune system, particularly effective with anxiety and depression. And that, you know, as somebody who is the child of two scientists, I'm married to a scientist. I am not good at math, so I wear makeup and talk to television cameras for a living. But but <laughs> that was compelling to me. And so that's how I got over the skepticism. And I And I would add just one other piece, which is that the word meditation is a little bit like the word sports. And so it describes a whole range of activities. But the kind of meditation I got interested in uh, it's called mindfulness meditation. Deri it is derived from Buddhism, but is thoroughly secularized, stripped of any metaphysical claims or lingo. And it has been studied. That's the type of meditation that's been studied the most in the labs. And so it didn't involve, you know, having to believe in anything or wear special outfits or sit in a funny position. It was kind of a simple secular exercise for the brain. And that whole proposition was quite compelling to me. And you're on this journey, you're kind of reporting this out, right? You're talking to all different kinds of gurus and spiritual practitioners and scientists, and you're you're going through the motions as if you were reporting a story, but things have practical implications for your life and your well-being and mental health. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I basically co-opted the resources of ABC News to go on my own little personal quest. That's uh, my favorite part about being a reporter. It's amazing, I, I will, right? I will say I um I'm pregnant and I uh, was making a decision about whether or not I was going to get the vaccine and you know there's no there's been no completed study about it and so I kind of went about my decision as if I were reporting out a story if I were reporting out the risks and that's kind of like the the beauty of our job is that we can use our skills and our access to really smart people to report things out in our own life. 
Totally agree. And so that's what I did. Yeah, I just got really interested in it, um, in the fact that I, had, like everybody, have this nattering voice in my head and it's giving me shitty ideas on the regular and and making me, you know, I was so stressed about work. It's such a competitive profession that I'm in, that we're in, and, um, and that was making me unpleasant to live with, not only for my then fiance and now, you know, wife and baby mama um but also just like in my own head was not a ple- that wasn't a pleasant place to be mm. and yeah and, and i had this incredible luxury of being able to just call people up and say you know can i interview you and, and it just went went from there so what did it mean ultimately for your actual news job when you started doing this did your did your thoughts about what you wanted to be doing every day shift and what actually made you happier that has happened slowly. Um, at first, it didn't shift at all. I mean, I, I, I really just wanted to be able to handle the ups and downs of TV news more in a more supple fashion. And I did not think, you know, I, I wrote a book about all of this. Um, and I, I, I did not think anybody was going to read that book. I mean, I, I really not not this is not false modesty. I mean, I, I couldn't get arrested in the publishing world. I mean, I was I had a fancy book agent and a trying to pitch it to publishers. And I, I only got one meeting. Um, and that one oh my God, meeting, how many people, how many people are kicking themselves still? Actually, not funny. taking that meeting when the book did well, which again, I mean, I, I, I honestly, nobody could have been more surprised than me, but I, I remember when it did well, um, my agent told me that he got an, a one word email from one of the publishers who passed on it. And that one word was fuck. Oh, I love that. <laughs> if I could frame a story, I would like to frame that one. It was, uh, that was, that was nice. Um, so I, the, the success of the book uh, created a whole bunch of problems for me. Um, it was, it was amazing. It was the coolest thing that's ever happened to me professionally. It was incredibly moving for, and gratifying. And I remember when the book hit number one on the bestseller list, I got a call from my the aforementioned agent. And then I called my wife and she was working at, a, at the hospital where she worked and she stepped out of a meeting and I told her and the two of us just giggled for a you know, long period of time because I had worked mm-hmm. on the book for five years. Nobody, I mean, we, we was just like this crazy little side project. And, you know, we, I really didn't think it was going to do anything. And, and, and I was so happy to be wrong about that. However, it did lead to, you know, it, it, it opened up all of these opportunities and, and I didn't necessarily handle all of those opportunities incredibly well. Not, I want to be clear about what I mean by that, which is I basically just said yes to everything. And, right. um, yeah, i should I start my own podcast? Yeah. Uh, should I start my own venture backed company that teaches people how to meditate through an app? Yes. Should I um, start giving speeches all over the place? Yes. Should I write more books? Yes. On and on and on. And all the while trying to cling to my TV news career. And so over time, I've you know, been forced to make some hard decisions. Yeah, I, I was the anchor of Nightline for quite a while and had to leave that job because I just couldn't balance that with everything else that I was doing. And yeah, so it's, bas- it's, it's forced me to look at some of my own sort of insatiability.
when I hear you talk about your book, which is called 10% Happier and was a smash success and everyone should pick it up and read it because it is incredibly valuable to do so and will open your eyes to things in your own lives in a way that you probably couldn't imagine right now. Uh, But it came out seven years ago. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Since the book came out, you have written other books. You have started a podcast. You have done speaking engagements. You have started a company. What has changed in your thinking or what have you learned since the book came out that you think are the tenets that people should understand about mindfulness and and happiness? What are the things that are just like top of mind for you as you think about this space in 2021? The animating insight for me of everything I do is that the mind is trainable. The brain, by extension, the mind, both the the physical organ and uh, the mind, which may or may not be an emergent property of that um, of that physical organ. You you are not fixed. You are uh, you're not stuck with your character traits as they currently are like like factory settings that are unalterable what the science around meditation is showing us is that the that happiness compassion connectedness generosity all these mind states that we want they're skills not you know fixed unalterable factory settings as as i said before and that is incredibly good news and to to the extent that i am now like basically a, a meditation or happiness evangelist, mm-hmm. what, what does an evangelist do? They spread the gospel. And what does the gospel mean? It means good news. And that's that's really good news, that you can take responsibility for your own mind, your own brain. And um, and so just that underpins everything, everything I do. I think about this so much, and I'm, this is why I'm so glad that you're taking the time to talk to me today, because when I listen to you tell your story about you spending um, time in really difficult places as a reporter. And I hear you talking about the ability to train your mind. I just think about the news climate that we've been in for the last five years. And I've just been thinking about this on a personal level a lot and how much people were addicted to sort of the drama that we were experiencing, uh, that, that had very high stakes and great consequence. And everyone was tuned into cable news and Twitter Facebook, like as if every five minutes were the most consequential five minutes of their lives. And it really, it sucked and zapped my soul and it sucked and zapped so many people's souls. And I just want your take on, on why you think people were so obsessed with what was happening and how you think people can sort of get out of the cycle that we've been in. And, and even now I, I mentioned this a lot on the podcast, I still as a news person, people come to me and they're like, did you see this? Did you see that? Did you see that? And I'm like, just take a breath and step away. And I think people are just addicted to what they've been fed over the last five years. And I I can't imagine that it's great for mental health and happiness in general. I don't think it is. And I think addiction is the the right word. I I mean, I want to be careful as a news person I mean, I really do believe that we need to be informed citizens and paying attention is a good move. But paying obsessive attention does not appear to be a good move. And I think stepping away from the data stream on the regular can have lots of salutary effects. Um, 
you know, I kind of talk about the the pantheon of no brainers when it comes to, you know, human flourishing or happiness, sleep, exercise, reasonably healthy diet without being too compulsive about it, meditation, nature, and human relationships, mm. which that, that sixth thing is, is pro- seems to be the most important thing, the quality of your relationships. I would step away from compulsive news consumption to focus on those six things. And um, that does not mean you can't enjoy a little bit of the drama of the news cycle. It doesn't mean you can't, you know, doom scroll once in a while. But the the constant checking is I, I just don't think it is good for you. It can't be. You bring up that sixth thing and and that leads me to think about where we've been over the last year. Uh, if if the quality of your human relationships are one of the most, if not most important things, we've all been in isolation for more than a year now. We haven't been able to see our family. Uh, we haven't really been able to spend quality time with our friends. None of us have really gone into offices and seen coworkers. Just the day-to-day human interaction with people who you'd see on the street or in your neighborhood, that's been limited and masked and sort of all shifted and changed. What have you observed about how that has impacted our collective mental health and and what what should we all be thinking about as we kind of re-enter this next phase? Oh, this is a great question. I think the data are really clear on this. We are hopefully at the tail end of a global, unregulated, unplanned experiment with what happens when you deny people social sustenance. And the results seem pretty clear to me. I mean, just a a massive uptick in anxiety, depression, addiction, and suicide. And I hope this is one, if not the major takeaway from this dumpster fire of a, you know, of a year or two years or whatever it will end up having been in, in the end. I don't, I'm not totally confident that that's the case. I, there's a great expression from then Senator Barack Obama, who said, America, goes from shock to trance faster than any other nation on earth. And I think there's some <laughs> truth to that. Um, but, you know, my, when I'm feeling optimistic, I do hope this is the lesson we take away from this, that we need other people. And if your life sucked uncontrollably, if your life was really difficult over the last year or so, one of the major contributors I would I would suspect, aside from the all the anxiety and uncertainty is the fact that you didn't have other people uh, around you as much as you're used to. And, Mm. um, you know, as a podcaster myself now, I'm constantly interviewing um, researchers uh, about uh, what what makes us as a species tick. And it just over and over come we come back to the importance of social connection. We we didn't take over this planet because we were the strongest. If that were the case, you know, elephants and whales would be running the show. We took over the planet because we could work together to kill the whale. And uh, that cooperative capacity is so hardwired into our DNA. Um, and to ignore it is to create a mental health crisis, which, by the way, was, you know, predates the pandemic. We're already at the, like, the loneliness and anxiety, and depression, addiction, all deaths of despair, all of this stuff was already just was already bad, but it got so much worse when the pandemic hit. I just think we need to pay attention to this. 
So what happens when, you know, we are slowly starting to get back to a semblance of safe normal, or at least we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We, we know that there's a path to get there, hopefully um, in the not so, so distant future. But there are things that I think will fundamentally shift about our society. I don't know that we go back to in-person offices at the volume that we went to before, for instance, or are we all comfortable on our Pelotons or working out from home as opposed to going to a gym or going to a class? Uh, there, are, there are things that are um, convenient to do at home. There are things that are not even mandated by us where our employers feel like it's more cost effective to work from home. And so what happens when our lives do shift to become more isolated, either by choices of our own or not by our own? I think we have to be much more intentional about making sure we orchestrate for ourselves meaningful social interaction. Mm. I, I, I just think, you know, it's like this is a public health message. The the data around the, you know, the importance of having meaningful relationships are so strong that we need to be as intentional around this as we are around exercise or sleep or any of the other things we do because we know they're good for us. The, there's a great couples counselor by the name of Esther Perel. She has her own podcast. Um, Such a great podcast. It is. I mean, she and she is just a force of nature. But she, she has this little expression, which is the quality of your relationships determine the quality of your life. Mm. Just seems inarguable to me. And we are not taught how to do relationships. We get sex ed. We get, you know, financial education. Some of us, we get we get lots of varieties of education. But we're really not taught much about how to do intimate relationships or even how to do, you know, the blocking and tackling of friendship and peer relationships, people skills, you might, they, 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 they've been called, um, these or soft skills. Um, and so th this is actually what I'm writing my next book about. And, and to use a kind of grandiose term, what you could call all of this is love. You know, I mean, love as a term has been ruined by you complete me and other, you know, pithy little lines from movies and uh, pop songs. And, you know, we think of it as this kind of limited range of human interaction. But you can really think of love as um, sort of anything north of neutral. You know, this human capacity we have to give a shit about ourselves and others. And that's a key part, point here care or love or kindness, whatever you want to call it, is omnidirectional. Um, and a huge part of this, and this is we're really bad at this in the West, is having a warmer relationship with yourself. And the, so these skills are really not widely taught. And I would love if the pandemic leads us down a path to teaching us how to have better relationships with ourselves, which can then unlock a virtuous upward cycle of you know, once your inner weather is bombier, your relationships improve. Of course, once your relationships improve, your own inner life gets better, and then your relationships improve more, and then your own inner life gets better, blah, 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 upwards spiral. I think that is incredibly powerful and underappreciated, and we are underinformed about it. So if you are interested in this upward spiral and, and in taking the time at this point to make these changes for yourself. This is feels like a great time to do that, uh, at least a great time to take the mental step toward getting there. What do you do when you want to set out 
on this journey. And, and I know you mentioned this earlier, but how do you start to form these habits and make this part of your daily, weekly, monthly life? Well, the first thing to say about habit formation is that it's just diabolically difficult. And I actually think it's a very useful thing to say. It can sound pessimistic, but just, you know, I mean, it, it probably lands as true for everybody listening to this, but we might have personalized it. We might have told ourselves a story about how we are, we have a kind of bespoke lunacy when it comes to this issue. Um, but but in fact, it's hard for all human beings. Um, evolution did not care about your ability to create a flossing habit. Evolution cared about, you know, the natural selection cared about, you know, one thing, getting your DNA into the next generation. So we're really good at threat detection and, you know, finding food and mates, but not really good at, 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 at forming long-term healthy habits. And so just knowing that can change your attitude as you're entering into behavior change in any sphere. Uh, so as it comes to med- when it comes to meditation, I've got these two little slogans I use. One is one minute counts. You know, I, I, we don't really know the what the dosage is that will um, give you all the advertised benefits of meditation. What's the everybody wants to know like what's the least I can do and get get all the benefits and we don't, we that just hasn't been answered by the scientists yet. But I believe as a starting point, one minute is really useful. Um, and then the other is, the other little slogan is daily ish. And, and this is backed up by science, that, that if you have too rigid a plan for whatever habit you're trying to form, the first time you miss a day, you know, the voice in your head, your ego, whatever, your inner narrator will swoop in and tell you, you know, you're a failed meditator or exerciser or whatever. And then, you know, I'm, I'm out. And so having mulligans in your back pocket, having a psychological mm-hmm. fle- flexibility, elasticity can aerate the whole thing. Does that make sense? Totally. Is there a certain amount of time that it takes to form a habit? I've heard two weeks thrown around, but I don't know if that is true or backed by science or too too short, too long. My understanding is that it really depends on the habit and it depends on the person. And so these kinds of numbers may not be worthwhile. Um, As it pertains to meditation, this is just a rough rule of thumb that I've seen from com- completely unscientific scanning of the of the landscape uh, from my perch uh, over the last seven years of you know nonstop um, yammering about meditation in public is that like a month seems to make sense, which makes meditation mm. a little bit more of an annoying habit because I mean you exercise for the first time in a long time, you will notice that you're sore. Uh, and sweaty. And so you, you, the feedback is there, whether you like it or not. With meditation, it takes a little bit more time. Um, and so I actually remember that when I first started doing it, one of the first data points was that I overheard my wife at a cocktail party telling one of our friends, maybe it's your husband, um, who was a longtime friend of ours, um, <laughs> Dan started meditating and he's less of a shithead. And I thought, well, that's that's interesting because I hadn't seen anything yet. And this was just weeks into it. But I'd say for me, the, the, I started to see three benefits after a couple of weeks. What were they? One is calm, just a increased sense of like, you know, taking myself out of the traffic, out of the nonstop sort of mindless toppling forward momentum that, that at least characterizes my life. Taking myself out of that 
for five minutes because that's what I started with. I started with five minutes a day. Um, just kind of can infused my overall life with a sense of calm. Just a quick mm-hmm. side note on that, though, is don't expect any given meditation session to be calm. Um, and we can talk about how to meditate and um, and the, the pernicious noxious role of expectations in meditation um but but so so don't go in expecting you're going to ne- magically feel calm just because you're meditating but i think the, the net effect is that it will make you calmer the second benefit is focus and again this is backed up by the science people who meditate it's been shown that the part of the brain associated with attention regulation changes in healthy ways um, and then the third and the most important is mindfulness which is kind of an overused buzzword these days but it really just kind of means the self-awareness that allows you not to be yanked around by your emotions. So I might notice in a conversation with Bianca, some anger arising, but I'm way less likely to take the bait and act on it and say something that's going to ruin the next 48 hours of my life. And that, mm-hmm. that the, when you see that happen, when you notice, oh yeah, I, I was overcome with a really powerful emotion, but I didn't do the habitual thing. I was able to respond wisely to whatever was happening instead of reacting blindly, instead of being owned by the voice in my head. That, when I see that happen for folks, that's when the lights go on and and this becomes a much more abiding habit. Those are like the emotional biceps that you would see from from a workout routine or your heart rate on your Apple Watch. Those are the, the tangible measures of progress in meditation. You said that you started with five minutes a day. What's your meditation practice like now? So I've gone on a whole arc with this because I started a five minutes, uh, five, maybe went to 10 minutes a day for the first year. And then I went on a meditation retreat. Quick mm. word on, about this. It's a whole crazy thing, this meditation retreat scene. We, we can talk about it if you want, but you don't have to go on a meditation retreat in order to be a meditator. I was writing a book and I needed some shit to write about. So I went on a meditation retreat. Sure. It was incredibly faith-inducing, not faith in the traditional sense. It was sort of confidence-inducing. I saw at high dosage what meditation could do to my experience of being alive, and it was pretty extraordinary that when you the chatter, when you turn the volume down on the mental chatter and sort of drag yourself kicking and screaming into the present moment, there's an enormous amount of serotonin a dopamine that could be released in those uh, in those moments. And so that that was pretty compelling to me. So I started doing about a half hour a day for several years after that. And then 10% Happier came out, the book. And I got in my head that I was going to write a book. And I may still at some point write a book about like the deep end of meditation practice, way beyond 10% Happier, because what the Buddha, who invented this, this form of meditation, was talking about was not 10% Happier. He was talking about 100% Happy. And um, that's a that's a big promise. And so I got interested in that. And I started to do two hours a day of meditation. Oh, my God. I know you would do it twice a day for an hour. No, no. My rule was I could do whatever a length I wanted, wherever and whenever I wanted. So I I would kind of divide it up randomly. But if you tap me on the shoulder at any point in 2016 and said, how much have you meditated today? I'd be able to, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm at 57 minutes. I gotta, I gotta do the rest. It's so funny because Lee and I were talking about our chat last night and what we wanted to talk about. And he was like, I bet if you were to ask Dan how long, if he could meditate 
for as long as he wanted every day, he would say he would meditate for two hours. And I was like, that's insane. You're insane. And you not only proved Lee right, but you uh, are showing how limited my understanding of this is. It pains That's me. That's wild. Prove, it pains me to prove Lee right. I just want to. It pains me. <laughs> uh, well, let me just say that this caused a lot of havoc in my life. I mean, Bianca has bad memories of this period, justifiably. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of being a dick about it, really. It's a weird thing to be a dick about meditation, but I was. And by the way, we had just had a baby. Um, and when I went up to this level of meditation, which was so not cool, I mean, we, I wasn't completely leaving her in the lurch or anything like that. There was a whole long story around that, but, but we, it's not that bad, but it wasn't good. And, um, it feels like the least selfish, selfish behavior I could ever imagine. That is so well said. Yes. Um, but it was nonetheless selfish behavior. And, um, after getting some pretty harsh feedback about that and other, aspects of my overall comportment. Um, I went down to an hour a day, which felt very easy for me. And then I went to like, I, I'm, I don't even track it anymore. I mean, I know that I feel better when I do more meditation. I enjoy the practice. I think something happens, you know, I'm like 11 or 12 years into this now. I, I had heard about this earlier uh, when I was forming the habit of meditation. And so it was kind of annoying to hear about this. And I, I fear I'm going to be annoying now. But in this habit of meditation, at least, it feels uphill for a long time. And at some point, it just starts to feel downhill, not in a bad way. Like, it's just easier. It takes on a momentum of its own. And so I don't have a dialogue in my head the way I used to about, like, tisk tisk Harris, you got to meditate. You got to get your minutes up. I just know that like, I actually enjoy the practice. I'm happier when I'm doing more of it. And, and as long as it's not having a negative effect on my wife or anybody else, then I'll do as much as I can. It's so interesting because when I when I hear you say this, I'm I'm not as diligent about meditating as I want to be and this is really making me feel this way, but I run every day and I have pretty much for the last 12, 15 years. And that to me is like kind of a form of meditation because I just turn off. I don't think about anything. It's, I, I usually run the same route every day, so I don't really even have to think about it. And um, I feel with any kind of habit that brings you joy or kind of mental reset or physical reset, if it really is routinized for you, if it's part of your daily life and it makes you feel better, I don't ever think about it. Like I, it's just part of my day. I fit it in whenever I can fit it in. And I know that I will never regret doing it. There's never a day where I'm like, yeah, I didn't, I shouldn't have made time for that. Or, uh, that, that didn't feel as great as I thought it was going to feel. And I don't, I really don't even second guess it as long as it fits into my life and doesn't, you know, obstruct other people in my life and, and feel annoying to them. I do it and I don't think about it. And I think that there's something very valuable about having, a piece of your life that is just set in stone that you know will will make you feel better every day. Yes. And what you're that insight you're articulating is again backed up by science. You know, just this morning I was actually interviewing a a, a professor from Wharton, Katie Milkman, who's written a book that's coming out in, in May about it's called How to Change, I believe. And and so I've I've talked to a lot of people about um habit formation, behavior change and 
once it becomes pleasurable, it's much more likely to be abiding. And um, you're seeing that in your own life, clearly. So if if I want to spend more time getting into meditation, actually, like you really have inspired me in this last 43 minutes to do that. How do I get started? And how do people listening to this get started? Obviously, you personally are a great resource. And please tell us all the ways that, that you can help us. But what are some steps to get forward and, and to get on with this this chapter in our lives? Sure, sure. I mean, I think there are three ways in and, and they're not, there's no mutual exclusivity here. You can do all three of these. Uh, one is, you know, I, when I started meditating, it was before meditation apps were a thing. So I just read a few books and the instructions are pretty simple. It might be worth us at some point going over the instructions because it, it, it can be similarly faith inducing because you can hear how how uncomplicated it is on some level but the instructions are pretty simple and i just read a few books and and started to do it on my own the books that i would recommend are um was a great book by a guy named john cabot zinn um he wrote a he's written many books but the one that i read uh was called wherever you go there you are and uh, there's another book called real happiness by a woman named sharon salzberg I remember giving that book to my mom, who's quite a skeptical human, and she started meditating right away and still still wow. is doing it. Um, the other way in is is now we have all these great meditation apps. I have to be a little careful here because I'm, I'm I have a conflict of interest given that I'm a proprietor of, of the Ten Percent Happier app. But I have to say it's like a great industry, and I'm not aware of any bad actors. So if you you know just search in whatever your app store you use for meditation and just check around for the one that 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 kind of speaks to you. They all are either free or have free trials, and just you know uh, uh, do some taste tests. And then the third, and this is has not really been available of late, but I think it's going to start becoming available. Is just in person, you know. And me- most major cities have meditation drop-in centers where you can go learn how to meditate. And um, many of them are Buddhist, but I wouldn't worry about that. You know, if you're like where you don't want to get sucked into some religion or something like that. B- Buddhism is not religious in, in, in that way. It's, um, it, you know, the Buddha was, uh, I, I, let me just say, I know many Christians and Jews who practice meditation, even Buddhist meditation as part of their spiritual practice. And it doesn't in any way conflict with their pre-existing beliefs. Or if you're like me, a more sort of an agnostic, it's not going to require you to believe in anything. So those are the three ways in. If people want to seek you out personally as a resource, either through your podcast or your book or your app, how can people go about finding you? Because I want to find you in as many places as possible as I continue on this journey. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I'm not hard to find. There's a, the, for better or worse, I'm not hard to find. Uh, I have a <laughs> podcast called 10% Happier, right? You know, it's two and a half times a week I'm interviewing um Meditation teachers and happiness researchers occasionally will put a celebrity on there if they're interesting. That's two episodes a week. And then we also post free guided meditations in the, in the feed. So that I have that. I have a couple of books I've written. I'll probably, I'll probably have a new one out in the next 18 months. Uh, so that's on Amazon. And uh, what else? Some Your app. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. My CEO would kill me for having forgotten that. Uh, t- the 10% Happier app, which is really 
my baby. I, I use the term my uh, really loosely because there there's a lot of people who work on dozens and dozens of people on our team and who are working on this day to day. But it's I just think it's so beautiful the the everything from the graphic design to the, just the quality of the teachers and we do a lot of video. So you know you will give you like a two or three minute vid- fun video clip that explains why you're about to do what you do and it slides right into an, a guided audio meditation. So. That's a huge focus for me. That's amazing. I'm going to go download it right now. And I'm also going to go buy all the books that you just recommended. And and I'm going to make this a priority, particularly in the next uh, two months before I have an interloper in our house. <laughs> and feels like a great time for me. And I know it'll be a great time for everyone. Dan, this was such a joy. I feel happier just talking to you as always. But I'm just so grateful for you, you sharing your wisdom here and taking the time to, to stop. Thanks for this. having me on. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you to our guest, Dan Harris, and of course, my co-host and birthday boy, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there. Thanks to our great producer, Brett Fuchs, and the folks at Cadence 13 for their work as well. And of course, thanks to our sponsors. Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We will see you right here next week.